The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. We're glad you found us. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. I was at a veg fest this weekend in Hampton Roads, Virginia, and they did lots of things I'd never seen at a veg fest before. They had a beer garden. You had to get a ticket for that. What a great idea to make a veg fest festive and make a little more money for the cause. And they also had a pie eating contest. And that reminded me of the pie that is veganism. It covers so many areas of life. Certainly what we think about nonviolence, animal rights, the environment, cuisine, health, nutrition, fashion, business. There's so much to it. And if you're new to it, Oh my gosh, do you have an adventure ahead? I'm Victoria Moran, the host of the Main Street Vegan Program. I'm so happy to have you with us today. After the break, we're going to be speaking with J.C. Reese, who has a brand new book just about to pop called The End of Animal Farming. Oh my gosh. That sounds like happily ever after for those of us of the vegan persuasion. And right now, it is my honor and pleasure uh, to bring back a return guest, because I think she's terrific, and I like having her on here lots and lots, and that is Ginny Messina, Virginia Messina, MPHRD, a dietitian and public health nutritionist. She has written 10 books for vegans, including Vegan for Life, Vegan for Her, and even vegans die. She writes and speaks about vegan nutrition, preventing ex-vegans, and the importance of body positivity in the vegan community. And we're going to be talking about a lot of that stuff in our short time together, but mostly we're going to be focusing on the brand new book that she has written alongside Carol J. Adams, and that is Protest Kitchen. Welcome, Jenny Messina. Hi, Victoria. It's great to be here again. Well, it is wonderful to hear you. I loved your book. I actually heard your book, too. You know, I always used to say I read your book, but in this case, I heard your book on Audible. And yeah, it was we were wonderful. excited. That, yeah, we were so excited that it was that it's available as an audio book as well. Well, it's just another way to to get it. And, and I wanted to read it immediately right then and there. I was on an airplane and it's just kind of magical. It popped up and was very inspiring. And I love how you did it. it it's put together in a very interesting sort of way. So um, let us know some of this as we continue. Let's start by what is a protest kitchen? Well, you know, a protest kitchen is a place where we make choices about food as a way to promote compassion and justice and also to challenge some of the the problems of the day like global warming and climate change as well as a place to, to care for our own well-being. It's actually kind of the ultimate 
in local activism because everybody has to eat. And we wanted to talk about how the way that we eat, the way that we make food choices can impact so many different issues um, involving both people and animals. And what I find, Jenny, and, and maybe I'm finding it a little bit more today because I've had a couple of encounters recently with people who are so aware they're aware of social justice. They're in, aware of so much about the environment. But for some kind of reason, the vegan thing just doesn't work for them. And I find myself just stymied. I don't even know what to say. How, how do we get through some of that? Well, I, you know, and, and that, of course, is one of the reasons that, that we wrote this book. It's for, it's for vegans and for people who are curious about veganism and also for people who are not really even thinking that veganism might be for them. What we wanted to do was to, to show people that if, if they are concerned about issues like social justice, if they're concerned about global warming, then a vegan diet is really a part of, of what they are trying to do and a part of, of the things that, that they care about. We wanted to kind of help people make that connection. And of course, we talk a lot about the issue of compassion and compassion for animals. And, and that's where veganism has its roots. But we wanted to help people see that, well, that may be what veganism is, is really about at its core. It just happens to have all of these different impacts. And if you care about these issues, then maybe thinking about taking some steps towards veganism, taking some steps towards replacing animal foods with, with plant foods in your diet is really something that is compatible with, with your whole um, value system and your belief system. Mm. And you do this really, really well. One of the things I said about how this book is written in a kind of different sort of way after each chapter there are specific steps that have to do with food and shopping and the very practical things. So um, you get that in very nicely. And part of that is that I think you're trying to counter this idea that eating in this way is somehow exclusionary. It, it somehow sets people apart. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, and of course everybody, veganism does seem very um, outside of the mainstream to most people. Um, and it is, you know, it's not the way, it's not the way most people are eating now, but it's, you know, it's kind of funny because this reliance on meat and dairy and eggs that um, typifies current eating, current uh, standard eating patterns in the United States is really a deviation from conventional food practices around the world. You know, we know that, um, that most populations certainly started out eating a diet that was primarily plant-based and, and primarily pretty healthy. It's really only within the past couple of centuries that this diet that we view as conventional became adopted by many Western countries. And we know, of course, when we look around, around the world, and this is something that, that most vegans are, are familiar with, we realize that dairy foods, for example, are not part of most cultures because so many people in, in different um, ethnic groups and different societies can't digest dairy milk, can't digest cow's milk products. So veganism kind of brings us back away from, from uh, what we think of as the conventional eating pattern 
to an eating pattern that is really more a part of our history. And, of course, with all of the wonderful products that are available to us now and all of the amazing recipes and amazing websites, it's pretty easy to create a vegan diet that looks very familiar to most people and that looks kind of like what they grew up with, even though the foods are vegan and even though they're all based on plant foods. Mm-hmm. So you have, as I said, these actions at the end of your chapter. You've got 30 of them in total. But the very first one is to test non-dairy milk. So why is that the most logical place to start? Well, I think it's a great place to start for anybody who's thinking about a vegan diet or any type of of plant-based diet. And, And there are a couple of reasons for that. The first one is that it is a really easy thing to do. You don't need to know anything new about food preparation. You just use the milk the way you've always used it. It's just a different milk. Um, And since most of these milks are fortified with calcium and vitamin D, it it doesn't even change the nutrient content of your diet very much. So you don't need to even be thinking about that. And the other thing is that it is really a foolproof kind of change to make because there are so many different kinds of plant milks on the market, you know, made from soybeans and almonds and hazelnuts, pistachios, peanut milk. Anybody is going to be able to find a milk that they enjoy. Even people who have food allergies are going to have some some choices. So it's a really easy thing to do. It is something that anybody can do, and it's immediately impactful because it's better for the environment, and it removes your participation from factory farming and from, from an industry that exploits animals. Mm. So when I think, Jenny, of your um, your target audience, I'm thinking about people who really care. There's, there's that line from the old musical Hair. You know, you're someone who says you care about social injustice, <laughs> <laughs> who cares about the bleeding crowds and what about your needing friend, but somebody who's really, you know, out there with, with great serious concern about what's going on in the world. And I was just thinking recently, you know, we see this word that I don't even like to recite, the H-A-T-E word, and Mm -hmm. we see it describing crimes and speak and groups. But how about love groups? And why can't vegans be a love group? Because we have figured out how to get our reverence for life out there to bring in non-human animals as well. What do you think is going on within the vegan community that is keeping us from just showing so much love that everybody, at least everybody who's concerned about these other issues, isn't just looking at us and saying, yeah, let's do that. Well, I, you know, I, I think that there, that there are uh, probably a, cu- a couple of different issues. I think the main one is that vegans have vegans sometimes have kind of a bad image people think that think of us as as being judgmental and as not caring about humans you know we only care about animals or we only care about our health and and um and you know that was one of the things that we wanted to show in this book that there are vegans doing all kinds of social justice work um, that are you know are related to their veganism but also are related to to their concern about human issues and I think that we vegans need to work a little bit harder at helping people understand that we were once where they are. We, we weren't born vegan. We, we used to eat meat and dairy and, and eggs, and we made this transition, and we know about the challenges, and we are here to help other people do, to do it and not to judge them for where they are in their particular 
food and, and lifestyle journey at, at, at this point. And so we need to work a, a little bit harder at that. We need to be um, very wise and knowledgeable about helping people make vegan choices and see what their choices are, um, uh, you know, not make it difficult, not put up, not put up too many barriers, not, you know, be telling people that they can't have, they can only have whole foods and they can't have treats. Um, we want to make it, we, we want to make it healthy, but we want to make it simple as well. So there are things that we can do to kind of help, you know, bring people along and, and help them see us as a, as a community that is doing this kind of very generous type of outreach and uh, not challenging people, but helping people. Yeah. And I think, too, we have to allow for different ways to view things within the movement. And one of the things that you talk about very eloquently is the use of olive oil. And I have many, many guests who are very vocally opposed to the use of any extracted oils, and they make a lot of sense. But I want to hear from you. So tell me why using olive oil might be a, a good thing for most people. Well, it's funny, you know, we talked about, uh, you know, I didn't want to single olive oil out as the, as the only oil that, that people can eat or the only high-fat food that people can eat. But one of the things that we talk about in the book is the relationship between dietary choices and um, chronic illnesses like depression and anxiety and stress, because we talk about that a lot in the book, when you care so much about so many issues that affect animals and that affect people, it is very easy to feel overwhelmed. It's very easy to feel depressed. So we wanted to talk a little bit about what a vegan diet can do for you in that regard. And one of the things that you can do is to choose extra virgin, really good quality extra virgin olive oil instead of animal fats. Because for people who have ever done um, an olive oil tasting, really good quality olive oil gives you this little peppery feeling at the back of your throat. And that is from a compound called oleocanthal. It's a phytochemical. It is a uh, very beneficial compound that has anti-inflammatory effects. And inflammation is an underlying problem for a lot of chronic diseases, inc including probably depression. So this is a tiny thing that people can do, but we wanted them to know that there are reasons. If you enjoy using good quality extra virgin olive oil in your diet, it is not a bad thing. There may actually be some health benefits associated with that. So that's why we, we talked about olive oil in the book. Well, and you did it very nicely. So how about more on this whole depression issue? Because I do think it's true. I remember, oh my God, this was ages ago, um, the 70s. Oh my gosh, most people weren't even born then. And I was speaking with this lovely young woman at a, a big um, vegetarian event. And she was so depressed that she'd given up her career because of what people do to animals. And I thought, good heavens, you know, this, this is scary. What, what's yeah. going to happen? And, and, and I don't know what happened, but I, I do think that we kind of take on kind of the woes of the world as we should, somebody has to, but then what do we do about the emotional um, result of that? 
Right. And we, and we talked about, and, and we talked about lots of different things that people can do to kind of counter that depression and counter that tremendous stress and, and feeling of, of being overwhelmed and, and sometimes helpless that people have. Um, we talked about diet as one aspect of this, because I mentioned the inflammation. Inflammation is chronic inflammation is thought to be an underlying factor in chronic depression and choosing more plant foods instead of animal foods is one way to reduce inflammation in the body. Um, fruits and vegetables in particular, you know, they're packed with these phytochemicals and antioxidants, but all, all whole plant foods, whole grains, beans, nuts and seeds are, are good um, for reducing inflammation in the body. We wanted to be really careful about, about the fact that this is not a cure-all for, for depression. Um, you know, depression is, is, is a serious disease, and I'm not about to say to somebody who, who suffers from it, you know, well, you're, you know, you're not eating right. If you just eat a healthy diet, you won't have depression. That's absolutely not true. Um, it's, for most people, it, it, it requires a much more holistic approach, in, sometimes including medication, sometimes including counseling. It's, it's different for everyone. But this is one tool that we have that can help at least a little bit. And so it's, it's really... It's a wonderful thing because a vegan diet or a plant-based diet is a great way to counter so many of these problems that we care about. And at the same time, maybe it can make you feel a little bit better too. So um, that, that, that's an important part of the book, and, and that's why we talked about the olive oil. And, and of course, you know, we talk about, about other ways to, to increase your intake of plant foods to, to help with this. And then there are also some reasons why going vegan beyond diet, beyond nutrition, might help somebody just feel better about life? What are those? Well, you know, there are a couple of things. One of them is that um, you know, we talked a lot about the relationship of plant-based diets and vegan diets with to the environment and to, to shrinking your carbon footprint and helping to um, respond to global warming and climate change. One of the one of the the issues with uh, with climate change and global warming, one of the things that that it impacts is biodiversity, and there's some research from um, some Japanese researchers talk about compounds in nature that have kind of healing effects. I mean, we all know that you go out for a walk along along the ocean or in the in the woods, you know, you kind of, it lifts your spirits. You immediately feel better. And these researchers talk about the fact that there may be these beneficial bacteria, these beneficial oils and scents or aromas in plants that are actually responsible for some of this boost in our mood. Um, Global warming is um, kind of an assault on, on that biodiversity and on, on all of these compounds. So choosing a vegan diet isn't going to have an immediate impact through the environment on your mental health, but it could be a way to um, help protect the, the mental health of, of future generations. Mm. And, and then the other thing that we talk about, of course, is this wonderful psychological boost that you get when you stop eating animal products because it brings your your actions in line with your your belief system with your with your most deeply held beliefs and values of compassion and justice and inclusiveness and um and so that's a really important thing it relieves this cognitive dissonance that we sometimes have when we care about animals but we you know know that animals are being abused in the factory farming system so that's um uh that's a really that's 
I think that 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 helps a lot of people to feel better just knowing that um, that their choices are having an impact and that their choices are right for them, that they are eating in a way that feels right to them and to their value system. Mm. I love the idea that this is one thing that you can do, that you're making the world better just by living. You know, on one of those days when you're not protesting something and you're not writing a check to anything, just living, you know, you're, you're okay for today. So it's a little that's bit. Right. Of and that, that's right. And that's right. Yeah. And, and we, and, you know, we talked, we talked about how all, how these little choices can um, can make a difference, and you're right. You know, there are there are days when you're not going to be out there protesting. Some people never have time to do that. Um, some people their their lives are just packed with taking care of their family and um, you know their job and outside of taking care of their family, and they don't have they don't have time to maybe for volunteer activities or for activist activities. But everybody can choose a hummus wrap instead of a tuna fish sandwich, and everybody can and pour almond milk over their cereal instead of cow's milk. So we do have an opportunity, and that's what a protest kitchen is all about, that we have these opportunities every day to, to make choices that make a difference. Oh, hooray. <laughs> Listeners, you know, I'm always telling you about books that are so great. I loved this book. I mean, I truly love this book. I found myself just so enamored that after I heard it, I then had to read it. I wanted one that I could hold and the holidays are coming up. And if you know people who really are concerned about the planet, about this world, about human rights and all that, this would be a wonderful, wonderful gift for them as well as from yourself. Now, Jenny, I want to ask you something very practical because I run into this. I think a lot of vegans run into this. People will sit down with us and ask about being vegan and then they will tell you why they can't be vegan. Uh, I, I, I have to be keto because there's no other way that I can lose weight. Or, um, I was vegan and I became anemic or it's just like, you know, I'm sorry, all these things happened to you. You know, I'm, I'm not a physician. I don't have all these answers, but you are a healthcare professional. What do you say to all these people who say they just can't do it? Well, I think that, um, uh, you know, it's, I think that, that there are people who definitely have challenges in, in going vegan that may not be, be true for, for you and me. Um, if somebody insists that, uh, or, you know, if they need to be on a keto diet in order to lose weight, you can actually be on a keto diet and be a vegan. There are actually quite a few Facebook groups with huge memberships that are devoted to vegan keto diets. So it may not be the easiest thing in the world, but if for people who are really interested in veganism and really embrace these values that are associated with veganism, there are, there are ways to do it, even with some of these very specialized diets. I recently wrote about um, the FODMAP diet, which is a diet that um, is very, very popular. It has a lot of research behind it. It's for people who suffer from irritable bowel syndrome, which is, a, you know, just such a debilitating condition, so difficult. And um, the FODMAP diet limits a whole bunch of different high-carbohydrate foods. So um, 
I wrote up a plan on how a vegan could follow a FODMAP diet and heard from some vegans who have irritable bowel syndrome who had been, you know, hadn't been able to, to find any solution for it, who are now following that vegan FODMAP approach. And so I think that, you know, it's kind of where there's a, where there's a will, there's a way. Um, but I don't certainly don't mean to minimize the fact that, that for some people who have some serious food restrictions, there are more challenges to being vegan. Um, what I do like to, to remind people is that veganism is not just a diet. It also means that we are choosing products that are not tested on animals. It means we're not wearing wool and leather. And so if you're struggling with making the dietary changes, then maybe put that aside for right now and look at some of these other choices that you can make that might be, be more doable for you. So I think we can always help people to take some steps towards veganism, and they can just kind of keep going as, as far as they can possibly go. Oh, I love this. So if, if we get the big vegan love group going, you can be the chairman <laughs> of the board. So we just have a couple of minutes left, but there was in your introduction something that you really are known for out there in the world, and that is about body positivity in the vegan community. So tell us what that is, what you're doing about it, and what we ought to be doing about it too. Well, now that's part of our that's part of our vegan our vegan love fest and and turning the vegan community into into a love community. I think that we sometimes have this idea that vegans need to look a certain way, and um, and and also this idea that if somebody does not have perfect health or they don't have what um, our society describes as a as a perfect body, that it means that they're not doing veganism right or they're not making making the right food choices. We need to be very careful. About about making those kinds of judgments about other people because diet and disease and weight loss are all really, really complex issues. And so we want to um, make sure that we're not judging other people when most of the time we, you know, we don't even have an, enough information to have an opinion about, you know, why they have a particular chronic illness or, or, you know, why they have a particular body size. We want to not make those judgments and also to let everybody know that everyone is welcome in this community. Everybody can be an animal rights activist. Everybody can be a vegan. You don't have to look a particular way to do that. That sounds lovely. Love fest, love fest, bring it on. <laughs> so the book is Protest Kitchen by Jenny Messina and Carol J. Adams. We love Carol. She's over there in London having fun, and I promise not to be jealous. And if you want to find Jenny online, we'll, of course, put this on the show notes on MainStreetVegan.net. But she is TheVeganRD.com. That's her website, The Vegan RD, on Twitter and Facebook, and Ginny, G-I-N-N-Y, Messina, on Instagram. Thank you so much, Ginny, for all you do in the world, for writing this book, and for uh, being one of the animal's best friends. Oh, thank you, Victoria. It's such a pleasure to talk with you, as always. Thank you. And everybody else, stay with us. We've got more ahead. Experience the difference. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. 
when listeners like you contribute to Unity Online Radio. You're making a positive difference in your life and the lives of other spiritual seekers. Go to unityonlineradio.org and click on Donate to make a one-time donation or sign up for monthly contributions. Thank you for your support. Here's a Unity Mindful Moment with Rev. Wendy Craig Purcell from Unity San Diego discussing change and transition. And as we begin to really identify the endings in our lives, to deal with them completely and wholly, to heal from them as we must, as we are willing to be in a time of not knowing, a time of uncertainty, but a time of trusting that there is a blueprint, there is a plan, there is a destiny. As we move successfully through these experiences, we will find that we are evolving and emerging into something new and different. And everyone and everything that has been happening in your life, both the things that are easy and good and pleasant, and those things that are challenging and painful and difficult, are drivers for your own evolution. To find a Unity Church near you, visit unity.org. Since 1924, Daily Word has offered inspiration and practical teachings through daily prayer messages to help people of all faiths live happy, healthy lives. The magazine includes two months of daily affirmations, messages, articles, and spiritual poetry to help you get inspired. Subscriptions are available for print editions in large type and Spanish, as well as the digital subscription package that includes the online magazine with audio, smartphone app, and daily email. Get your subscription today. Visit dailyword.com or unity.org. If you've been on a spiritual path for a long time, what can you read that's new and exciting? Try Unity Magazine. It's designed for the seasoned spiritual student with in-depth articles and interviews about spiritual practices and philosophies. Our columnists share their own faith journeys and cover healing, science, and psychology with even a little scripture thrown in. You'll read some classic authors and some new ones. Get a free trial issue at unitymagazine.org. More and more people are interested in a vegan lifestyle, and the numbers continue to grow. Join Victoria Moran every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central for Main Street Vegan and learn how to make the shift to help animals and the planet. Each week, Victoria shares recipes, health tips, and interviews with celebrity vegans, experts, and activists. Learn how to make a difference for animals and the planet at every meal. Right here on Unity Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome back. I am Victoria Moran, and Main Street Vegan is where I hang out. So if you want to know more about our work, just go to MainStreetVegan.net. Some of the wonderful things we have going on, 
our Main Street Vegan Academy, where you can come to New York for six magical days and get yourself certified as a vegan lifestyle coach and educator. And one of the other arms of Main Street Vegan, our production company, we've just done our first documentary with filmmaker Thomas Jackson. That's a prayer for compassion. So if you have any interest in uh, spreading this vegan message to people who identify as religious or spiritual, get in touch with us and see if you want to do a screening and be part of a prayer for compassion going out into the world. We can sure use one of those. So my next guest, so much fun when somebody is up here in person in New York City. And J.C. Reese was kind enough to uh, come up here to Harlem and talk with me in person today. J.C. is the research director of Sentience Institute, an effective altruism think tank researching the expansion of humanity's moral circle. His new book coming this month, The End of Animal Farming, it illuminates humanity's upcoming transition to an animal-free food system. He has written on these topics in media outlets like Vox and Quartz and spoken about them in over 20 countries. Welcome, Daisy. Thanks for having me. It is absolutely wonderful to meet you and, and to see you. I've read a lot of your work and you are so on target and I love your positivism. This isn't like, oh, gee, gosh, maybe a few more people will stop eating animals. You are looking toward the complete end of the entire system and our transition into something better. Tell us about that. Exactly. So when I started doing research into this field, I saw there were a lot of good books and tons of really good literature on the problems of animal farming, on why people on an individual basis should adopt vegan or more plant-based diets. But there was a lack of, of, of literature and I think research on how we progress as a society towards an animal-free food system. You know, what can we achieve beyond our individual diets or change within our local communities? How do we really manifest change at the global scale? So uh, with a background as a social scientist and uh, an effective altruist, you know, thinking about social movements and how they succeed, I thought that's where I could kind of write a book and that's where I could do my own research. And you're doing it amazingly well. So explain this term for those who are unfamiliar with it, effective altruism. What does that mean? Sure. So this is a broad philosophy and social movement focused on applying evidence and, and reason and science and um, overall, you know, rigorous thinking to doing good in the world. Uh, it was a lot of people, I think, coming from charity or coming from altruistic places, but frustrated a bit with how a lot of charity these days and a lot of attempts to do good in the world don't always come to fruition or at least don't achieve as much as they could. Uh, so this is really combining, you know, the heart and the head to make sure we can have the biggest impact that we can on the lives of others, including humans and of course, including non-human animals. So something that I always think is someone who has not really looked into this at all is that effective altruism means that if you don't have a lot of money to give, give it to a smaller place, it'll go farther. Is that sensible? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the many rich debates that happen in the communities and there's not a clear consensus. A lot of people think that if you have expertise in an area or you have connections in an area, you can do a lot of good through uh, using that know-how to figure out where to give or who to support, um, such as if you know, you're know you a dedicated vegan and you happen to know that a local veg fest is really struggling for funding, but you know the people in charge of it are really capable and you have a bit to give, you, know, you have one or five or 10% of your annual income, that can be a great bet. Whereas if you don't have that sort of connection and you want to give to wherever it can do the most good in the world and you don't see you know, an outstanding opportunity nearby, uh, you could look at an organization like Animal Charity Evaluators in the animal space or like GiveWell, uh, which looks at global poverty charities to find where you could do the most good with a more 
generic, um, you know, or, or fungible donation. Mm, I love that because I love the idea. We're all trying to do the best we can, but to know that we're doing it in a way that's really going to do something, mm -hmm. it just, it just makes you feel really exactly. good. So in terms of ending animal farming, let's just look at ending it. <laughs> what can we do right now today to be really effective about that? Yeah, so one thing I really encourage people to do is think beyond just their own diet and their own lifestyle. So, for example, as you mentioned at the beginning, if people can become advocates, you know, maybe some ways adopted more plant-based foods or went all the way vegan, but they really want to affect their local community, uh, that can be very powerful. So, for example, if somebody is working at a big company that has their own catering or their own cafeteria, if you get something like more plant-based options um, at that institution or with your local church or some sort of community center, that can be really powerful. I want people to think at the community level. I want people to join you know, local uh, vegetarian societies, local effective altruism clubs, and work together as a movement and kind of transcend their individual diet. I think a lot of people, in fact, when I talk to them about you know, plant-based eating or going vegan, they struggle because their own community isn't on board with this and they can kind of help themselves change more easily by changing their community. So I always want people to think beyond just their own individual diets. Um, you know, think about the local uh, animal rights group that's working for some sort of big policy change. Let's say meatless Mondays somewhere or cage-free eggs or helping animal shelters no longer serve animal products at their events. All of these things that kind of are collective action working together, I think are building a movement, not just individuals, that can achieve an animal-free food system. So when you're looking at the end of all of it, and yet it can sometimes seem like there's so much of it, mm -hmm. I think sometimes if we were comparing our movement to the abolition of human slavery in America, I don't know if we're at 1650 or 1800. I don't know how far along we are. And it's so frustrating. How far along do you think we are? It's complicated because uh, with different movements, they face kind of a different structure in society. So for example, very few movements are as closely tied to something that's a part of people's day-to-day -day life. And that at least currently doesn't have a perfect substitution through ethical means. So when you were switching from slave-made goods, for example, to non-slave-made goods, it was still a cotton shirt. It was still sugar. Um, it wasn't kind of fundamentally different, whereas right now we have to switch people to, you know, whole plant-based foods or to something like the Impossible Burger or the Beyond Burger, um, which are great, but aren't an exact substitute. Um, so perhaps we have a lot of the attitudes and we all have a lot of frustration and in fact moral outrage with animal farming and factory farming in particular, which is immensely powerful. Um, but on that kind of product angle, we're not as far along. So I think if we can have the technology, you know, I'm a big fan of what's called uh, cell-based meat or cultured meat, you know, building real meat from animal cells without animal slaughter, um, then that can kind of springboard us to, I mean, in the American movement, maybe around 1840 or 1850, um, I think the British movement is more comparable because they were kind of the first uh, to abolish slavery as an institution. You know, America did it as a latecomer, um, and that was more of a struggle, and I think more of what will happen in 20 or 30 years from now. Um, but if we look at that sort of situation, then in terms of public outrage, I think we're quite far along. And in terms of the products itself, which is the other piece of the puzzle, we're a bit um, you know, earlier. And I think so far, vegans and animal advocates have spent a lot of effort on moral outrage and getting people aware of these things. And that's amazing. Um, but I don't think that we just need glass walls. I think we need more than that. We need something in terms of products, in terms of technology. And that's why I'm really excited about groups like the Good Food Institute um, or groups that are doing that sort of institutional change like Meatless Mondays to help people align their behavior with those values. So what are we doing that's not effective? And maybe <laughs> we think it is. 
Yeah, so the big thing I point to in the book um, are two things. Is one, uh, the individual focus and really conflating in the public eye, caring about farmed animals, opposing animal farming with going vegan yourself. And while that's a very important tool and on a personal basis, um, a very important way to address those issues, it's not everything there is in a social movement. You know, to go back to the slavery example that we were using, there was a group called the Free Produce Movement that was working to get people to abstain individually from slave-made goods, but that was just one piece of the puzzle. Um, so I think an overemphasis on that can be ineffective. And that's why I'm stressing addressing things at an institutional level with technology and whatnot. Um, I don't think that's counterproductive. Uh, if I had to point to the biggest example of something that's actually counterproductive, it's been the use of gimmicks. So in particular, kind of sex sells imagery. Um, the farmed animal movement or the animal rights movement in general right now has a pretty severe reputation issue. Um, in fact, when we speak with other social justice advocates, you know, for feminism or anti-racism or anti-classism or any of these issues, we often get a lot of backlash um, because the history of the movement is, is so entwined with um, using uh, scantily clad women, with using uh, controversial examples from race or class uh, to try and draw awareness to these issues. And I think it's important right now that we focus on not just getting more eyeballs, getting more outrage, but on getting taken more seriously as a social movement. And I think to do that, we need to avoid those sorts of gimmicks. So how much of a leap do you think it is? Because this is the first social justice movement ever that those who have the most to gain can't participate mm. because they're animals. And it's also, I think, a really big leap for so many humans to, to get the philosophical framework around including their interests in, in our framework at all. How mm -hmm. do we do this? Yeah, I mean, a big part of this is leveraging the existing expansion of humanity's moral circle. So this is what we broadly study at Sentience Institute, which is how people widen their scope of moral concern. Um, and that's been a huge project of advocates throughout human history to first widen it from you know clans and villages to the nation state, now to a global community, um, also to different genders and races. And fortunately in 2018, we have a lot of this historical progress to build on. We have the abolition of slavery. We have the franchisement of women. We have all of these human issues and indeed many animal issues today, such as you know bans on, on the use of animals in circuses or um, the use of animals for cosmetic testing and, and these sorts of other areas of progress that movements of the past didn't have. So while we have in some sense a fundamentally more challenging struggle ahead of us, we also have more momentum than uh, movements throughout history did. And we have to utilize that. We have to build on existing compassion and existing senses of justice um, to meet people kind of where they are and utilize that to push us forward. And that's a big reason for optimism. You have this ever expanding scope of moral compassion, you know, that seems like it's leading us to some really amazing places. And in the book, at, at the end of it, I in fact talk about where it could go beyond farmed animals. And maybe with a momentum from that, we'll be able to care more about wild animals or insects and bugs and kind of all sentient beings in the world. And I think that's uh, a really exciting future to look towards. And I think also when you talk about incense and bugs, some people are going to say, I knew that's where you were going. I knew the <laughs> vegans were nuts. Yeah, I mean, it's important to remember that 200 years ago, to even bring up animal rights, you would have sounded like a complete crazy person. Mm. You know, with feminism, for example, a foundational text there was A Vindication of the Rights of Women by Mary Wollstonecraft. And that text was mocked um, with a, another one called A Vindication of the Rights of Brutes that said, okay, if you give women 
rights, then you might as well give animals rights. And this is so laughable, so beyond the pale that obviously we can't extend rights to women. And today in 2018, I don't want to be ignoring what people decades or centuries down the road will think of, of me as an advocate or think of our movement. Yes. And I want to keep my eye to even the very distant future. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. And I've always thought, I wrote in a book a long time ago, that if you become one of those people, as I am one of them, who puts the jar over the bug and mm. the piece of cardboard underneath and carries it outside, somebody might think that you've lost your mind, <laughs> but maybe you have found your heart. Mm. So you have a four-stage roadmap mm. for um, ending animal farming by 2100. And what are those four stages? Sure. So it's kind of Obviously, I don't have a crystal ball, and I'm just taking my best stab at this, but I think we need to do long-term planning and strategizing to better understand what's in the future and better uh, progress towards that rather than just short-term change. So it's just divided into quarters of the century. So right now, from around 2000 uh, or even the 1990s, the beginning of the movement, uh, you can think we're in the foundation stage. A lot of what we're doing up until 2025 is building capacity. We're building a movement. We're building nonprofits. We're building companies. We're building activists all of which aren't creating you know, more than, let's say, 5 or 10% change in the scope of animal farming, at least at a global scale, um, but are building resources that we'll utilize in future stages. So from 2025 to 2050, I think that's the revolution stage. Kind of the biggest changes are happening. And a big part of that is, is a lot of feedback loops, a lot of cyclical change you get into. So for example, when you have that uh, moral outrage that we talked about built, that then leads to behavior change. But as people are no longer eating animals three times a day, you then get more of uh, an embracing of animal rights ideologies and more attitude change, more people feeling that moral outrage, which then leads to more behavior change. And that's why I think this, this 2025 to 2050 stage is really the revolution of the movement. And then from 2050 to 2075, I call that stigmatization. So it's where people are becoming uh, more aware of this issue, not just for ethical reasons or for personal reasons, but for social reasons. You know, the people who aren't switching to animal-free foods at that stage will be seen as uh, laggards. They'll be seen as, as a minority, as the people who are unethical in some way, sort of like in the U.S. right now if, if people are driving Hummers. You know, in many communities are seen as as uh, non-environmentalists or, or really just polluters uh, in a bad way. There's a stigma attached to that. Or also smoking really has this right now. Um, and then finally, from 2075 to 2050, or to, to 2100, I think you'll have uh, follow through. So this is where we reach kind of all corners of the globe, such as Sub-Saharan Africa, where right now many people don't have the ability to uh, choose plant-based foods or even to choose animal-based foods uh, in many situations. They're, they're Diet is often dictated by just what's available, by what's affordable. Um, and because of rising incomes and a global infrastructure, we'll see even places like Sub-Saharan Africa adopt an animal-free food system such that by 2100, I think animal farming will have ended all the way around the world. So are we going to bring it down quickly enough that we'll still be here in 2100? Mm. When I look at the predictions about the irreversibility of global warming in eight years that all the wildlife will be extinct by 2026, by 2040, no fish in the sea. And it feels so pressing. Mm -hmm. Like we have to create some kind of miracle right now. How do you look at that kind of stuff? Yeah, it's scary. Um, I think there is a bit of doomsday thinking there. And I sometimes err more towards, I don't want to say optimism, but less pessimism or it's less dire than some you know, media outlets, for example, make it out to be. I mean, obviously I want us to be fearful of it and acting on it because it is such an important issue. Um, but I do think humanity will survive. 
Um, I think that we're seeing a lot of rapid change, especially in high-income countries uh, before 2050. It's just going to take a while for it to expand all the way around the world. I mean, given how entrenched animal farming is in basically every country now, and fa including factory farming, even in places like India and China, it's just going to take a long time to fully expand. Uh, so it's going to take a long time to get down to you know zero animal farming, whereas we'll get to something like 50% reduction uh, rather quickly. However, I should say here that if humanity goes extinct, which is obviously quite bad for the humans, um, animal farming will end because we won't be doing that anymore. Um, I mean, it's, it's a complicated moral issue, obviously, um, but I don't think that if we continue to survive, we'll continue using animals for food, even if it's just out of our own self-interest yeah. because of those climate change concerns. So you have an interesting statistic here that 50% of farmed animals live in China. Mm -hmm. What's the animal rights vegan movement like there? Mm, yeah, so a few months ago, I was actually in China giving lectures, talking to a lot of local advocates about their strategy, and it's 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 very nuanced. So for example, they have a culture and a tradition of plant-based eating, and they have tofu and they have soy products. And often if you talk to, to, to young people there, they'll say like, oh yeah, I, I could go vegetarian and that would be really appealing to my grandparents, or it would have this you know, unique benefit that's not really present in the West, where if I talk to my grandparents or my family in, in rural Texas where I'm from, they're obviously saying, what are you doing, you, you hippie, you millennial, you know, this isn't something that makes sense from our cultural background. So in some ways they have advantages. Obviously, because of these issues with um, just the movement not having as much of a track record, uh, you know, they are struggling a bit um, with the kind of top down social structure. I think they'll struggle to have the groundswell of activism that we've had in the West. And I think instead you'll see more of a uh, top down change with businesses and governments adopting things like Meatless Monday policies, investing in animal free food technology and kind of taking these things on from the West. And fortunately, I know a lot of ad advocates who are working through these means to empower you know, Chinese advocates, because many of them are aware of these issues, um, to create change in their own country. And what I don't want to see is, is the animal rights movement demonizing or antagonizing, uh, especially Asian cultures, but any culture. Uh, because when I talk to people there about animal rights, many of them think of it as, well, the West has been imposing this on us and, and talking about how we all eat dogs when really, you know, very few of them do. And there's a lot of negative precedent there. And I think we can avoid that, but we need to tread carefully and focus on empowering Chinese advocates. Mm. I just think empowering one another, just accepting people where they are for the moment mm. anyway. <laughs> it's almost like who was born enlightened? Very few. Mm. So I'm talking with J.C. Reese, and you can find him. Uh, his website is jcreese.com, J-A-C-Y-R-E-E-S-E. -E -E. He's J.C. Reese on Facebook and Twitter. The book is The End of Animal Farming, and his Instagram is End of Animal Farming. If you go to the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net, all that will be there. So you're really interesting, and you have done a lot in your relatively short millennial life. So <laughs> how did it all start for you? Oh, well, I was uh, very focused on effective altruism. Um, I was wanting to do the most good, no matter what issue. And I originally was more focused on global poverty. Uh, when I was in school, I expected to go into a career, uh, for example, in, in Brazil, working in finance to kind of support their economic infrastructure and earn enough money that I could donate it back to the economy. Uh, but then I really looked at the numbers. And, and especially as I was graduating university a few years ago, I had just saw how compelling animal farming was as an issue. And I realized that I couldn't place such a 
uh, really an extremely low value on the va on on animal life, such that it would justify me personally focusing on humans if I wanted to do the most good in the world. I mean, there are over a hundred billion animals on factory farms right now, just enduring torment every day. And from this effective altruist perspective, and then given how neglected it is, and given how many tools there are for change, as we've discussed already, um, it was a no-brainer. And I yeah. let me just get that number. You said one hundred billion with a B. Correct. And how many humans are there? Uh, a little over seven. We're eating an awful lot of animals. Yeah, yeah, especially if you think about chickens and fish, because they're so small, it takes so many of them to provide the same number of calories as a cow. So that's why China has 50% of the world's farmed animals is because they eat so many farmed fish. Mm -hmm. My goodness. So the nuts and bolts, let's get back to this thing that you're very excited about. And this mm. is the clean meats, the lab-grown meats. So that's my first question. What should we really be calling them so that people who want to eat them, and that's not vegans by and large, but mm -hmm. people who enjoy meat today, what's going to make them want to eat it? Yeah, so clean meat has been the front runner in terms of a positive public term, sort of the way we have clean energy. Uh, or we have green energy, though green meat doesn't sound as good because it sounds moldy or diseased. Uh, however, it's interesting, in China, the translation of green meat sounds very good in Mandarin uh, because they don't have as much of the association with, with disease. It sounds more like sustainable meat or something like that. Um, however, there are some difficulties. So, for example, from a regulatory perspective or from an official, you know, what do you put on the food label perspective, um, they don't usually want uh, effect terms, terms about the impacts of, of products. They instead want something that describes the process, in which case I think cultured, um, I think cell-based are fine terms. Um, I think lab-grown is, is what I'm hesitant about, or test tube or frankenmeat, anything that's <laughs> implying this kind of scientific laboratory environment. Uh, first, because it's it's misleading. You know, when this is produced at scale, it'll look like a, a beer brewery, a, a meadery, we could say. Um, and we wouldn't call, you know, beer, lab-grown beer, just because it was first um, made at a small scale in research, or, you know, Cheerios were invented in a food lab. Um, so it's important to avoid, I think, those terms. But if you want to be descriptive, cultured, cell-cultured, cell-based are fine. If you want to talk about the effects, which, you know, are the most important aspects, um, then clean is good or sustainable or something like that. And you can always just call it meat without animals. I mean, in the long run, we'll just call it meat because that's what it is down to the molecular level. Have they done studies yet? Have they talked to people about how they're feeling about this kind of meat? Yes, so there have been um, over 20 surveys uh, just asking people what they eat it. Um, unfortunately, a lot of those describe it as lab-grown. One of the worst ones by actually um, Consumers Union um, said it was uh, a laboratory product that tastes like meat, <laughs> uh, which is just the most uh, you know unappealing way to describe it. Um, you've also seen experiments that compare the different terms side by side and compare how many people are interested in eating these foods. Um, I think this is really hard data to interpret as a social scientist because it depends just so much on framing. And people are not good predictors of what they'll actually do in their grocery store. And I think once you get these institutional changes happening, once you get you know meatless Monday policies, once you get people seeing this as something we should do as a society um, and seeing it as the new normal, that's when you're going to see really big adoption rates. Um, mm -hmm. But right now there seems to be plenty of interest in it, you know, plenty of people who say they're willing to try it 
or would eat it, for example, if it cost as much or less than conventional meat, um, that you'll get that initial momentum. And I think that's what matters the most. So the next decade, when these products first come onto the market, uh, that's where we're really going to see a fork in the road. And we could see something go wrong, like if the infirm of lab-grown gets really popular, or if uh, there's a contamination issue or some sort of scandal associated, that could go really poorly. But if we make it past that, if we make it past the rapids, I think we'll go pretty smoothly towards the end of animal farming. That's really exciting. Now, in terms of the foods that are available now, mm-hmm. plant-based foods that mimic animal foods, it seems like there's some controversy on what to call those. Mm. And I go into Starbucks and I want my <laughs> chai latte with almond milk and it comes stamped on the little sticker, almond drink, which sounds like, I don't know, orange soda. So what's going on and should the FDA have the say over what we call what we eat? Yeah, I think in general, it makes sense for the FDA to regulate these things, uh, more so than the USDA in these cases, because the FDA's mandate is consumer safety, whereas the USDA uh, also has a mandate to promote agricultural commodities, which by and large today involve animal agriculture. Um, In terms of the specific milk issue, and in general, dairy products are where a lot of this controversy is because they've already grown so much. You know, uh, plant-based dairy options, or sorry, I should say fluid milk options, um, are around 10% of the market share of animal-based, which is way larger than any other category. Uh, Plant-based meats are roughly a quarter of a percent of the market in the US. Um, So you're seeing a lot of backlash from the animal, you know, dairy industry. Um, And I would like to see milk refer to just the product itself. You know, if it is filling that culinary niche, if it has a nutritional profile, if it makes sense to consumers in terms of what they're actually drinking, let's call it milk, let's call it meat, let's call it cheese, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Whereas the argument from the industry is, no, it's based on origin. It has to come from an animal. Whereas I think most people aren't eating meat. They aren't drinking milk because it comes from an animal, but in in spite of the fact that it requires animal slaughter, most people are uncomfortable with that. And what they care about is just the the, the molecules, the food itself that they're putting into their bodies. And I think on that metric, the plant-based products uh, should be called meat, dairy, and eggs. Love it. So that means uh, I just love eating meat, dairy, and eggs, but (laughs) not the animal kind, obviously. J.C. Reese, your energy is amazing. Everybody read The End of Animal Farming. And guess what? One of these days, it's going to end. Thanks to people like my guests today. Thanks to J.C. Reese and to Ginny Messina, MPHRD, Protest Kitchen. Thanks to Unity Online Radio for hosting. To you for listening. God bless you. Eat your veggies and some mock meats. Bye, all. <laughs>